Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Uh, last week was Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I hated to be out particularly on that specific Lord's Day because that is a topic that is very, very important to us all, especially in this hour. Genesis 9, 6. The scripture says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. So it is when the baby sleeps peacefully and his mother's lap is curled. But what when the cradle is empty, when no lullaby is heard, when no love, no warmth, no tenderness, and a mother's heart is stirred? When the hand that rocked the infant is the hand that takes the pen and signs the warrant for the infant's death, oh God, help us then. When the hand that rocked the cradle is the hand that lifts the picket sign and cries for the right that would commit humanity's grimmest crime. What hopelessness it is pervades this thirst blackest and darkest night. When the hand that should rock the infant is the hand that takes its life. On June 22nd of 1973, a group of black-robed Supreme Court justices instituted child sacrifice in the United States of America by legalizing abortion on demand. They contrived this so-called right based on the 14th Amendment of our Constitution. But the 14th Amendment actually had nothing to do with abortion or with the so-called right to privacy that they derived from it. It was actually a post-Civil War amendment intended to guarantee the rights of freed slaves. But although there was no legal basis for their decision, they legalized abortion on demand. It's clearly contrary to the intent of the founding fathers. The Declaration of Independence said, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life. Life. Surprisingly, the 14th Amendment actually directly appeals to that statement in the Declaration of Independence. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property. Where did they get that phrase, deprive a person of life, liberty? They're drawing it clearly from the Declaration of Independence. In other words, the 14th Amendment on which the appeal for the legalization of abortion on demand is based actually argues clearly 
for life as an inalienable right of all humanity. But a decision was made, a precedent was set, and the carnage that has resulted from that decision is almost incalculable. <clears throat> Since Roe versus Wade, 65 million babies have been aborted in the United States. The Goodmacher Institute of Planned Parenthood probably keeps the most accurate record of the number of abortions performed in the U.S. because their data is based on surveys of actual abortion clinics. And according to their data, in the first 10 months of 2023, 878 children were aborted in the United States. That's just the first 10 months of last year. Data from the last two months hasn't come in. But if the trend throughout the year continues, then last year in the U.S. we had approximately 1,054,000 abortions in the U.S. To put that in perspective, that is 88,000 per month. That is 20,000 per week. That is 2,888 per day. That is 120 every hour. And that is two every single minute that ticks by on the clock. In other words, in the time that we are convened for our worship of the Lord Jesus this morning, at least 150 babies will be aborted in our country. And that death toll is simply staggering. We all look back on the great wars of American history as enormous tragedies because of their death tolls. But they don't begin to compare to what abortion has done to our nation. 25,000 Americans died in the Revolutionary War, about half a million in the Civil War, 116,000 in the First World War, 407,000 in the Second World War, 54,000 in the Korean War, 58,000 in Vietnam. But more American babies die through abortion than the casualties of any single one of these wars every single year. As a matter of fact, in some years, more babies have died of abortion in the United States than the death toll from all of these great American wars combined. And although I don't want to overwhelm you with statistics, there's one more statistic I need to share that is especially troubling to me. According to the National Institute of Health, of those women who seek an abortion in the United States, one out of eight, that is 13%, profess to be born-again evangelical Christians. Since Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, we must assume that a large proportion of those come from our own Southern Baptist churches. Tragically, a few years ago, 
who we have the distinct honor, if you want to put it that way, of having both an American president and vice president who claim to be Southern Baptist, and yet both of them were avidly pro-abortion. Obviously, our churches need to do a far better job about proclaiming the truth about this scourge on our society. Now, I'm convinced that there are some people who know what Scripture teaches about these issues, and they're just going to do what they want to do anyway. Obviously, these aren't people who live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I have encountered people who come to church week after week who, based on the messages that flow in from our culture, are very confused about the biblical morality related to this particular issue. And some of that's our fault. Too often, if this issue is addressed from our pulpit at all, it is addressed poorly. Unfortunately, the mantra of the evangelical pro-life movement has become a Bible verse that is stripped from its context and misinterpreted. The key text is Deuteronomy 30, 19, which says, Choose life. Problem is, if you look up that verse in context, you'll see that it doesn't have anything to do with abortion. It is actually a command to the Israelites to obey the covenant of God so that they escape the death sentence that will clearly befall them if they forsake God's covenant. And I understand that we always want to appeal to the authority of the Bible and our moral arguments, but that appeal needs to be justified. It needs to handle Scripture accurately and reverently. We should never distort the meaning of God's holy word for the sake of winning an argument, even winning a moral argument. When we take scriptures like this and impose on them a meaning not intended by the biblical author and use those as the basis for our moral appeals, I understand why people think there's no strong biblical basis for opposing the sin of abortion. We need to do better. Although there is no explicit commandment in the scripture that says specifically, thou shalt not abort an unborn child, the Bible gives very clear principles for addressing this important issue. And I want us to look at just a couple of these this morning. First of all, although the Bible doesn't explicitly say, thou shalt not abort an unborn child, the sixth commandment does say, thou shalt not murder. So the clearest way of addressing the issue is simply to ask, is abortion murder? And by biblical definitions, it clearly is. Now, unfortunately, when we ask if abortion is murder, the debate ordinarily swirls around issues of medical science and questions of fetal development and viability. I don't think that's the place to look. Now, I am pleased to say that the more our technology advances, the clearer the evidence from those arguments 
uh, supports the pro-life movement. Due to advancements in ultrasound technology, we now know that 18 to 25 days after conception, the baby's heart is beating. 40 days after conception, brain activity in the baby can be recorded, which is a clear clinical sign of life. Eight weeks after conception, the baby feels pain, can grasp, can swim, and the fingerprints that that child will carry with him for the rest of his life are already formed. By the ninth and tenth weeks after conception, <coughs> 95% of the known structures, features, and organs of the human body are already in place. It should be clear to anyone who sees the image of that baby in the womb eight weeks after conception that this is a baby, this is human life. When I was a younger man, I was watching a program on public television about fetal development and our daughter, Rachel, who was two years old at the time, came skipping into the room and when the image of that eight-week-old fetus was on the screen, I turned to her to see how she was going to react. She glanced over her shoulder at the image and she said, oh, what a beautiful baby, and then skipped out of the room. I thought, yeah, that's obvious to a two-year-old. That, that ought to be obvious to anybody who looks at these images of these precious children. But fortunately, we do not have to appeal to medical discussions about the be beginning of life, human viability, and so forth. The scripture gives us even clearer principles for addressing the issue. And the clearest is in Genesis 9-6. What is it that makes murder, murder? Well, God said clearly, whoever sheds the blood of a human being, by a human being his blood shall be shed. For God made human beings in his own image. What makes murder, murder is it is an attack on a bearer of the image of God. We know from Genesis 1.27 that God made Adam in his own image and after his own likeness. Of all God's creatures, human beings are his supreme representatives. And an attack on one made in the image of God is a murderous act. Questions of viability and development laid aside. So the question that we need to ask as part of this moral argument is at what point does a human being receive the image of God? Well, Scripture makes that clear. Genesis 5.3 said Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a child in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Now what was the image and likeness that Adam bore? Genesis 1.27, he's made in the image and likeness of God. 
And so when the scripture tells us that Adam's image and likeness is passed on to Seth, his son, he's saying that the divine image is transmitted to Seth at this point. What's the point? Well, the scripture says when he fathered a child. Now, admittedly, the Hebrew verb here can refer to either the act of conception or the act of birth. But it's easy to tell which is in view based on the gender of the noun serving as the subject. When the subject is masculine, it refers to the act of conception. When the subject is feminine, it refers to the process of birth. And since we've got a masculine subject, Adam, here, this is clearly a reference to conception. That's confirmed even more by the hifil form of the Hebrew verb here. But here's my point. Seth possessed the image and likeness of his father Adam, and thus the image and likeness of Almighty God Genesis 1.27, from the very moment of conception. Thus, as a bearer of the divine image, any attack on the existence of a child after conception is a murderous act by God's definition. John Knox was a controversial figure in his day. He was largely responsible for sparking the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, uh, my, my old stomping ground of my ancestors. I come from the line of McGregor's and Denham's and so forth. John Knox was the champion who reintroduced the gospel in Scotland for the salvation of my forebears. After Knox preached the gospel in Scotland in 1555 to 56, papal prelates condemned him in a church trial in absentia. They sentenced him to death. And since they couldn't apprehend him and actually execute him themselves, they decided that they would burn him in effigy. And what that meant is that they made a mannequin of John Knox. They sewed together a, a human form and, and filled that with straw to make it look more lifelike. Sometimes when they burned an effigy, they would make a model of a person using paper mache. Then they would dress that model in clothes that resembled those of the person that they wanted to execute. And then they would burn that figure in effigy, what they really wanted to do was burn the person themselves, but since they couldn't get their hands on him, they did the next best thing. That's like the sin of abortion. Although it is not a direct assault on the existence of God, it is the next closest thing because it is an attack on God in effigy. It is an attack on the bearer of the divine image. Thus, any measures to terminate a child after conception are an affront to God and are murderous according to the divine and biblical standard. Another question we need to ask is, okay, if, if abortion is murder, does that then mean that God 
values the life of an unborn child as much as he values the life of, say, an adult. And here, unfortunately, the church is divided. And the church is divided because of the sad mishandling of an important text in some of our modern translations. The text I'm referring to is Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Some Bible versions, like the message, translate this passage in a way that implies that God values the life of a person who's already born more highly than he values the life of the unborn. Listen to this better translation. If men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no further injury. In other words, you've got a premature birth but no injury to either the mother or the child, then the one who hit the woman must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, however, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now in some modern translations, this text is handled as if Moses is saying under the inspiration of the Spirit, if the child is killed but the mother is not harmed, then only a fine has to be paid. There's no further penalty. Oh, no, no, no. That is not what the scripture is saying at all. If that is what the author intended, then at two critical points in this passage, he should have added the Hebrew phrase, la. And what I mean by that is, he should have said, but there is no injury to her specifically. And then later, if there is an injury to her specifically, but he doesn't. He just says, if there is no injury, and by leaving things open-ended, he means there is no injury either to the prematurely born child or to the mother that bore that child. So what Moses is saying is, if men get in a fight, hit a pregnant woman, she gives premature birth. And either the mother or the child are injured as a result, then the penalty is to be assigned according to the Lex Talionis. If that baby or mother lost an eye, then the perpetrator loses an eye. If they lost their hand, the perpetrator loses the hand. If they lost a foot, the perpetrator loses a foot. Or if either the mother or the child are killed, then the perpetrator forfeits his life. Do you see the moral implications of that? God values the life of that unborn child just as highly as he values the life of an adult. Causing the death of the unborn carried the same penalty as the murder of an adult. And that penalty 
was execution. You know, one of the helpful things to do when we come to moral issues like this is not only look at important principles in the Holy Scripture, but also ask the question, how did the early church handle these moral and ethical questions? After all, infanticide, usually by exposure, taking a newborn baby and just casting it out into the wilderness where it would be attacked by predators and so forth and killed, uh, and abortion were very, very common practices in the Greco-Roman world. This was clearly a moral issue that the early church faced. How did they respond? And frankly, looking at our earliest Christian literature is the best way to answer the question because those very early Christian writers were closest in time to the apostles and they were influenced by the traditions of apostolic teaching. Let me give you just a couple of examples of some early Christian documents. One is the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles. This is a Christian discipleship manual that compiled the moral teaching of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. It was written in the late first century, early second century. And Didache 2.2 interprets the sixth commandment as not only prohibiting the murder of an adult or a youth or a child but also prohibiting abortion and infanticide. The Didache says, you shall not murder children by abortion, nor kill what has been conceived. Notice the focus not on birth, but on conception. They recognize what has been conceived bears the image of God. They understood Genesis 9-6 well. And thus they consider abortion to be murder. And what's really interesting is that another very early Christian document called the Epistle of Barnabas, also written in the late 1st century, the early 2nd century, gives an almost identical statement. You shall not murder children by abortion or kill what has been conceived. And that's interesting because when you compare the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas, it's clear that one author is not borrowing from the other. Instead, they got this same statement from a considerably earlier source, a source that would date all the way back to just a generation or so before the time of the apostles. In other words, this statement is likely one taught by either Peter or Paul or James or John, the apostles of the Lord Jesus themselves. The statement demonstrates that in its very earliest history, the church had no doubt that life begins at conception and thus abortion is murder. Another very important early Christian document we might consider is a book called The Apocalypse of Peter. It was also written in the late first or early second century and it clearly describes abortion as murder. 
In fact, in this document, the Christian writer imagines the eternal punishment that awaits those who are guilty of this heinous sin. Let me warn you in advance, the quotation is disturbing. As he describes this penalty, he says, And near this fiery flame there is a great and very deep pit, and into it there flow all kinds of things from everywhere, judgment, horrifying things, and excretions. And the women are swallowed up by this to their necks and are punished with great pain. These are those who have procured abortions and have ruined the work of God, which he has created. Then after talking about abortion, he goes on and talks about infanticide. He said, opposite them is another place where children sit alive now and they cry to God. And lightnings go forth from those children which pierce the eyes of those who by their fornication have brought about their destruction. Other men and women stand above them, stripped, and their children stand opposite them now in a place of delight. And these children sigh and cry to God because of their parents and say, These are they who neglected and cursed and transgressed thy commandment. They killed us. They killed us and withheld from us the light which thou hast appointed for all. And the milk of the mothers flows from their breast and congeals and smells foul. And from it come forth the maggots, the tiny beasts that devour flesh, which in turn torture them forever with their husbands. Because they forsook the commandment of God and killed their own children. But the children will be given to the caretaking angel those who slew them will be tortured forever, for God wills it to be so. The Bible is not silent on the abortion issue. Obviously, the early church was not silent on the abortion issue. And the present day church, brothers and sisters, cannot be silent on the abortion issue either. Our confession of faith as Southern Baptists, known as the Baptist Faith and Message, says in Article 15, the church and the social order, quote, We should speak on behalf of the unborn and should contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. From womb to tomb, we must defend the sanctity of life. And I agree, we should speak out on behalf of the unborn, but I think we need to remind ourselves of the most important way of speaking out. Though political involvement and cultural engagement are necessary and certainly to be encouraged, ultimately, 
We must respond to the sin of abortion in our society, not merely through activism, but through evangelism. Because ultimately, it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes the hearts of individuals one person at a time and opens their eyes to the heinousness of this sin. I think that was proven definitively. And thank God back in June of 2022, the Dobbs decision of the conservative Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And we all celebrated that victory in anticipation that it would at least drastically reduce the numbers of abortions in the U.S. Tragically, in 2023, the number of children aborted in the U.S. exceeds the number from 2021. It proves the point, doesn't it? We can change the laws of the land, but unless the hearts of people are also transformed, it will not be effective. The Baptist Faith and Message reminds us of this when it says the means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual and by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand me. Yes, please cast your vote for pro-life candidates. Yes, please pick up the phone and call your congressman. Yes, please run for political office. Yes, please write your letter to the editor. But more than anything else, share the gospel. Because only Jesus Christ changes hearts and renews minds. There's one other thing that we need to address before we close this morning that is very, very important. According to the Guggenmacher Institute, by the time a woman reaches the age of 45, one out of four have received an abortion. 25% of American women. And that statistic alone tells me that there has got to be someone in this room today, certainly someone watching online, who had an abortion, who paid for an abortion, maybe even performed an abortion. And I recognize that this message is haunting, heartbreaking. You've got two different ways of responding to the guilt that you carry right now. One is you can attempt to sear your conscience. You can play the game of our culture and say, it was only a glob of tissue. You will not find peace 
our redemption that way. You will not find forgiveness by denying the reality of your sin. No matter how much your mind tries to convince you, your heart will still condemn you. Because in your heart of hearts, you know better. You know that what you did was evil and murderous. So don't sear your conscience. Bear your soul before God. Confess your sin to Him. And in brokenness, plead for His mercy. Because we serve a God who is kind and gracious and merciful and eager to forgive the most heinous of our sins. Never forget that some of the saints most adored in the pages of Scripture are forgiven murderers. Moses, who slew the Egyptian. David, who slew Uriah. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, who had a hand in the execution of the righteous martyr Stephen and who was responsible for the execution of many, many other Christians as he persecuted them for their confession of faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and King. And yet God in his grace forgave these men, transformed these men, and used them for great purposes in his kingdom's work. Hear the confession of one of those murderers. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, I give thanks to Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and there he's referring to his murderous persecution of the church, an arrogant man. But then he adds, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the very worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe on him for eternal life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You can know this great grace today. Yes. This attack on one in the image of God is among the very worst of sins. But just as the Lord saved Paul, who calls himself the very worst of the chief of sinners, so Jesus Christ can save and forgive you. All of us are sinners who deserve the judgment of a holy God. 
That God loves us so much that he came into this world and the person of Jesus Christ lived for us the sinless, perfect life that we can't live for ourselves and then went to the cross to be punished for our sins in our place so that we can escape the punishment we deserve. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, he was punished for our sins so that we can be rewarded for his righteousness. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, every sin we have ever committed can be erased from the great ledger of the heavenly accountant. So on judgment day, when God throws open his, the book of our lives to see what sins we've committed and what penalty we deserve, he will find the record clean, pure, and we will be free from accusation because of what Christ has done. And not only does Christ offer to forgive us, he offers to transform us. He offers to take a wasted life and use it for his glory. To change our character and make us more like the Lord Jesus himself. So that our lives are for God's glory rather than for his shame. So that we love others and we serve others. And we are forced for good rather than for evil. And you can receive this forgiveness and you can experience this transformation through faith in Jesus Christ today. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That means that we must confess Jesus as the Son of God, God in human form. The God-man who is worthy of all our worship. It means that we depend on Him alone for our forgiveness. We trust him alone for our savior. We give up any silly notion of working our way to heaven by our own so-called good works. We trust Jesus' sacrificial death and depend solely on that for our eternal hope. And it means that we submit to Jesus' authority as our king. And we bow before him and say, Lord, I want to live your way. Not my way. I want to obey your teachings and I want to follow your example. And when we confess faith in Jesus as God's Savior and King, He fulfills His promise. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't leave this place today without receiving that precious gift. I invite you to pray with me now and say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sins in my place. Save me. Erase my sins from the sight of the heavenly judge. I confess you as my God. I surrender to your authority as my king, change my life now. Help me to live for you. 
If that's your prayer today, in just a moment when we sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward and tell me about your commitment. I can tell you what the next steps are in your new Christian life. We can talk about believer's baptism at a future date. But you can leave this place today knowing for certain that heaven is your eternal home and that you who were once the enemy of God have now become the friend and child of God. I'll pray a prayer of thanksgiving together with you. And I believe the rest of your life will be an expression of thanksgiving for this great gift. It may be that there are people in this room who made that commitment long ago, but the truth is, you've been silent when you should have spoken up about some of the things that mattered most, like the issue of abortion. And I pray that you'll make a commitment to do what our Baptist faith and message says, that you will speak for the unborn, that you'll speak on behalf of those who don't have a voice yet and rise to their defense. And most importantly, I pray that you will make a commitment today to be a bold soul winner, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ at every opportunity because you recognize that ultimately we must change not only the laws of the land, but the hearts and souls of the people of this nation, one witness at a time. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you. And we know well, as the old hymn says, that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move and work compelling men and women and boys and girls to repent of their sin and believe in Christ, to submit to the authority of your word regarding this important moral issue, to be people of bold conviction who are not silent when they should speak. And we pray that you will make us bold and compassionate and sharing the good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.